This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. I got to the school where I was teaching folk dance to young kids and I just started to introduce a dance and the next thing I know blood is gushing out and my look down at my pants and there's red all the way to my knees. Um, so I go to the bathroom, I see if I can change. Um, it's so heavy that it's obviously there's nothing I can do. It's so much, so it's everywhere. Um, so I calmly walk over to the teacher and say, I'm sorry, somebody else is going to have to do this today. And I got in my car, lined my driver's side door with a garbage bag, sat on it, and drove home. Um, I thought, I know this is really serious. This is something that um, I am really, really in trouble here. Um, But I couldn't quite make it to the hospital. I went home. I was in my driveway, and the blood just kept coming out. And it was so, um, so much that I knew I I was going to need help at that point. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside healthcare. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the real life stories of clinicians, patients, and other healthcare professionals as they offer insights and tips for how we might navigate the U.S. healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and I am delighted to be here with Heather Almer today, who is talking about topics, uh, taboo topics in women's health. So, welcome, Heather. Thank you, Nicole. Okay, so scary situation. Blood is everywhere. Um, you end up going home first. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you go home and not go straight to the hospital? Well, that's a good question. I think I couldn't make it. Um, I knew I had to pull over somewhere, and yeah. I knew that that was the best chance of somebody finding me and not being on the side of the road. Um, and I had to pull over somewhere to make the calls. So I started with the hospital. Uh, The hospital said, okay, yeah, you're going to need to come in here. I said, okay, I'll get a ride. And they said to call back um, if I couldn't get a ride. And then they were going to send an ambulance. Called my husband. He ended up not having his phone that day. Then I called my my good friend and and neighbor, and also I worked together. Luckily, she answered the phone, and my office was close enough that she just came right by. And when she saw me, in the driveway, um, in my car, she saw the entire fr- uh, front seat filled with blood, and oh my gosh. Um, and she kind of, I could see that she was really worried, and um, but she was trying to be really positive and upbeat and calm me down. She said, "Okay, we're just gonna get in the car. We're just gonna go." And um, she moved the seat back and was trying to get on the phone while she was driving and got me to the hospital. And um, we got to the ER, at, um, and they ended up not having, like, a small enough wheelchair. I was in this humongous, you know, wheelchair that was twice my size and kind of falling out of it because I was trying to move back and lean back. Um, and immediately um, my friend tried to describe the situation because she actually had known what was going on with me for the, the prior uh, month or two. Um, so I immediately got tested for 
blood match and started, actually no, that time I didn't have, um, they didn't have time to test, they just started giving me blood. They gave whatever the kind of blood it is that they don't have to match because it was so urgent. Um, so I immediately got the transfusions and um, started the blood coming in and I was so relieved that I had made it in the hospital in time at that point. So um, that sounds really scary, so I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, so your friend ends up taking you to the hospital and you said because she knew what you had. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what, so you, so has this ever happened to you before? Okay, yes. Um, yeah, so. N no, I had never bled like that before, ever. Um, hope I never do again, because um, what was happening was I was hemorrhaging. Um, I had, I was at that time um, in my early 40s, and my friend, same age, um, we were both having heavy periods, and we both had um, just kind of sloshed through life with clumsily. We both worked at the same place, um, trying to cover up for each other and um, help each other out in, during this period, which is very common, apparently, you know, as a woman approaches that age of perimenopause, um, that your periods get heavier, heavier. So I'd heard this from other people, you know, oh, okay, it's really common. And also simultaneously, she had, we had both been losing hair. Um, we had both had, you know, brush our hair and you see the, the hairbrush, you're like, wow, that's a lot of hair there. Or in your shower clogs, you're like, wow, that's, um, that's getting clogged up for my hair again. Um, so we noticed that that was happening to both of us. Um, she had gone to the doctor um, and f who had originally sent her to a dermatologist who, um, then they thought it was stress. And actually, if you look up hair loss in women, a lot of things come up uh, that it's typical age-related, hormonal changes, stress. So those were the things that we were attributing it to and not necessarily um, the iron that, in fact, both of us were severely anemic. Um, so um, now going back even further, um, I'd had this hair loss happening probably over a series of years, uh, starting in my late thirties. And I had talked to friends about it and mentioned it to doctors and they're like, well, yeah, hormones and, you know, just attributing it to, to regular, um, changes in a woman's body. But also, but really, um, in addition to the hair loss and the heavy bleeding at that point in time, I was also noticing that I was getting more tired when I was walking, I was running out of shortness of breath. So another friend of mine um, happened to be on a walk, and which is a very, um, very shallow incline, not not a big deal. We're from Pennsylvania; we have a lot of hills around here. Um, she said, "I, you know, I remember I had to keel over, and I said, do you mind us stopping?'" And she kind of looked at me like, Heather, this is not you. You are not usually out of breath at this point in a walk. Can you please call the doctor and get an appointment? Mm -hmm. So I did within a, a day or two, and I got blood work done. And that same day, the doctor called me and said, you need to come in immediately for a transfusion. Oh, my gosh. Because um, my level was at 5. And this, the normal level of iron somebody needs is 11 to 16. Oh. Um, and they, they usually give transfusions at eight, 
gosh. and you're at risk of heart failure um, below that. Okay. So because the iron in your blood is carrying oxygen which needs to get to your bodies and that's why I was experiencing mm -hmm. shortness of breath. So um, that was um, about a month before this incident happened. Okay, so month the first thing I want to say is you have an you have amazing friends. Yeah, I do. Because <laughs> right. I'm hearing you have a friend who you're like, hey, do you yeah. go to the hospital? Okay. And yeah. another friend who's like, yeah, you know, you seem really out of breath. I really think you should go to the hospital. Like, you have really great friends who are around your same age, it sounds like. So yes. you, you really have a group to, to compare and contrast. Yes. And yes. So that's the first thing I just want to comment on. Mm -hmm. Um, the second thing is, uh, so is your official diagnosis anemia? Yes, that okay, was my official so, diagnosis at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounds like your friend also had anemia? She did. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay, so she had been through it, you knew you were anemic, mm -hmm. but to actually be bleeding that profusely mm -hmm. had yeah. never happened to you before, and it's no. pretty scary. Okay, so imagine. one other thing happened um, since the diagnosis of anemia. Um, and since it was really low, they said, okay, at the time it was an ER that I had to go to to get the initial transfusion, and they said, okay, you need to follow up with, if you think, if you suspect it's from heavy bleeding, then get an, an appointment with uh, an OBGYN. So I did that. Um, I saw somebody within a week, and I called the first person who was um, available at, the, at our local hospital, and I had an appointment with her. She uh, sent for a vaginal ultrasound, did a physical exam, and um, she, once the results were in, she, she noted that it was a uterine fibroid to blame for the heavy bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, and she recommended getting a procedure um, called a DNC, and then at the same time doing a hysteroscopy, which is looking at the uterus. And she recommended getting a uh, hormone hormone-producing uh, IUD, a uh, releasing, sorry, uh, and it had a name brand, which I'm not going to name. Okay. Um, so that was done, that procedure was done within a couple weeks. That was mid-February, and um, meanwhile, I'm still bleeding quite heavily, um, and after, once, that is a, a, a procedure where you go under, so when... Mm -hmm. Uh, because it would be too painful, they um, put you under for that. So when I came to after that procedure, she said, well, I couldn't get the whole fibroid. I didn't have the right tool, so I had to... I didn't have the right tool. Yeah, Sorry, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't sound word. good, okay. Um, <laughs> and so you're going to eventually need a hysterectomy. Oh. And it was not good news because I was like, wow, I thought we were going to handle this with this, um, you know. And I think that was the first time I'd heard hysterectomy, and... I was like, wow, um, I thought it was a huge deal to me. Like, oh, a surgery? I have to go to an abdominal surgery for this? Like, I, And um, you're looking at six weeks of recovery time. And um, I'm at this time, I'm working um, quite a lot of hours in springtime. I was telling you I worked in the environmental uh, education field where you're leading up to a lot of Earth Day activities and spring plant sales and stuff. It was just a very busy time of year. So I was not willing to say, okay, I can have an hysterectomy next next okay. week. There's no way. It's just there's too much life happening. So, um, but, of course, life slapped me in the face. And um, instead, after that IUD was placed, I had this sensation that my body was trying to get rid of something. Mm -hmm. And I felt like... Um, 
instead of like just the bleeding, it was like contracting bleeding. Mm. Uh, I wasn't able to use that word, but I said I felt like my body was trying to get rid of things. And um, I did communicate that with my doctor. And um, then uh, about two weeks later, I, we took a weekend trip and it was the first time I experienced this extreme bleeding, which was bleeding so much that any of the products you could get at CVS will not cover it. I mean, you need like towels, mm. several towels. And I was in a car, so we made several stops and then, then it kind of stopped and I went to a museum and we went to the hotel and spent the weekend. But I was like, wow, a good thing I have an appointment on Monday. I can ask my doctor about this. So I went to my appointment on Monday and meanwhile, I should say, I had been having um, iron transfusions. I was recommended to have um, iron, like they, they somehow concentrate the iron and they put it through your blood. And I uh, was scheduled to get three of those before my hysterectomy. So a hysterectomy was scheduled for me. Um, but they wanted to get my iron up to a point in order to get it, um, to have me have surgery. So. When I went to that appointment on Monday, I told the doctor, I mean, I was questioning her basically, like, how much can a woman bleed and still live? Like, I am losing volumes of blood. And um, she said, you know, you'd be surprised women are really made to bleed. And I was like, really? Okay. I was like, well, let's strand a public case. It's good. So She's just, telling me that, that I would be okay because it was... Just for, just for the timeline, though, I just want to make sure I understand. So the opening story happened after you diagnosed with anemia. And right. then after the opening story, you had some more heavy bleeding. Um, you had a procedure before or after this opening story? No, the story? procedure was for. The opening story before. was really the... The start. Oh, the and start. then you had the procedure after that. Yeah. No, the opening story is right when I had my emergency hysterectomy. So we haven't uh, gotten to that point yet. Oh, goodness. So okay. the opening story was about two weeks after that procedure um, oh, where okay. the I was, an IUD was placed. Had the procedure, IUD placed, mm-hmm. you, you, you start bleeding a lot. Yes. So what okay. was happening was my body um, I was diagnosed. Once I got to the hospital, it was a the official diagnosis was a prolapsed uterine fibroid. Um, does that, and I was five centimeters dilated. So that means that I was trying to, in fact, give birth to a fibroid or to, oh, or maybe to an IUD. Yeah. Uh, I would never know that because the same surgeon who placed the IUD um, was the one who um, and they, this, gave me a hysterectomy. This might sound ignorant, but they didn't notice the tumor when they placed your IUD? That's exactly my okay. question. Okay, mm-hmm. I didn't know because I'm thinking now, if it was that. So how big was the tumor? Um, or the yeah. You know, I don't fiber. know exactly. I, I have the the stats on that, um, but it was big. Actually, I have a message from my doctor saying it covered my entire uterine wall, oh my um, and it was a submucosal fibroid. There's many oh, different kinds mm-hmm. of fibroids, mm-hmm. um, depending on, and they're they're given different names depending on where they're located in the uterine cavity. So they couldn't see it because it was so large. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. And but you were trying Nicole, to Nicole, give... that's my basic question yeah. because I was given the literature on the um, the device that I was um, given uh, the day that I was inserted, and I looked at it afterwards, and one of the first um, 
co-indication co or it was mm -hmm. something like that, contraindication, mm -hmm. was that um, first, you shouldn't put it in a pregnant woman. Um, second, you shouldn't put it in any um, in a uterus that has any anything distorting the uterine cavity. Mm -hmm. And by definition, the submucosal fibroid is something that comes into the uterine cavity. Now they knew you had a tumor, but they knew you had a fibroid. Yeah, right. they knew you had that, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's so, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So then you had a, you have a hysterectomy. So I have the emergency hysterectomy, emergency hysterectomy. and um, that apparently went well, uh, according to what they told me as I came out of it. It was very, of course, traumatic because I had a lot of fluids and I had uh, a lot of blood. Um, and when I came to the next day, they said, "Well, it was, you know, it was a little longer than these procedures normally take because there was." Um, a little distortion of the anatomy. Um, it was heart amorphous uterus, I think the term was. Um, and that has to do with scar tissue from my C-sections, although that was not brought up at the time. Um, so, but th from their end, um, they, the doctor felt like it, the, the procedure had gone well. Um, that was, my procedure was done on a Thursday. And on Friday, of course, as you know, um, being in this field, probably the day after you have a surgery, they want you to get up and about, and um, they wanted me to go to the bathroom and um, urinate, and of course, I remember this from my C-sections, it's extremely difficult to do. Um, I could not uh, urinate because um, it just was too hard, too difficult, um, and this is going to be very personal, but I'm, I'm willing to talk about these topics because I feel that they need to be talked about. I agree. Um, so I could only get a couple drips out, and they said, okay, well, that means it's working if you got some drips. And I said, okay. But then I immediately noticed that my labial folds were swollen. I said, my, mm -hmm. my whole area, my vaginal area is, is swollen. And that was when things really, um, when I really felt like, wow, this is, something's going on here, but I... I kept getting reassured that everything was fine. Um, and they had to take the hat out because all of a sudden um, I was not able to urinate, but they th thought I had done some initial drops. I had They have this hat that they put on the top of the toilet to measure oh, output. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I had to take that out because my labial folds, um, labial folds, for those of you who don't know, is a part of a vulva, which is the exterior part of a woman's body. Um, it was so swollen that it was hurting that area, so it was rubbing against it area. Mm -hmm. So, and it was so red and swollen, um, I had to take that out. So there was no measurement of any output. Oh, um, and in 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 lieu of that, the nurses, when they came in to see, have you? Have, have you urinated? Have you checked on that? What's her intake, outtake? Because that's what they're supposed to measure while you're there. Um, they could only, um, I said, I sat on the toilet, but I don't think anything came out. I can't feel anything because it's all numb there. And um, so they gave me a bladder scan. So they scanned my bladder and they saw that it was being emptied. Um, and so meanwhile, they're still filling me with fluid and um, trying to get me to eat. Um, by wait, Sunday. I, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I can already tell. So your bladder was emptying. You're telling them that nothing's coming out, and it didn't dawn on them to, to ask, so where is all that going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I can already tell what's happening. Okay, go ahead. Mm -hmm. You can tell where this is going. Yeah. So on by Saturday, um, 
you know, I was still feeling progressively worse. I remember the nurse coming in being like, because I had my left leg was twice the size that it normally is. Oh. I'm looking at my legs looking like, because I had not gotten out of my hospital bed. I couldn't even do that. Um, by that time, my, my, my labial folds were so swollen that I couldn't walk. And I'm looking at my leg, it's so swollen. So meanwhile, the, the doctors and the nurses are coming in and saying, it's from all the fluids. You've gotten so much fluids. That was a really traumatic surgery. You got a lot of fluids. I'm like, wow, okay, it's the fluids. And then um, there's a, other than the doctor who performed my surgery, there was one other doctor who made his rounds. He came in and he said, how are you doing today? I said, well, I'm really swollen and I've got this, my vaginal area and I literally lifted up the sheet and he made a gesture like this. Don't do that. That's the domain of the OBGYN. So oh, he didn't even look at it. Wait, that was a surgeon. Uh, this was the doctor who was making his rounds. This, oh. The OBGYN was the surgeon. Yeah, oh, okay. the one, the one who kept telling me that it was uh, it was fluids, you know. And okay. uh, I'm but sure he wouldn't she, look. No, he wouldn't look. And so at that point, um, I had no choice, and I my husband was in most of the time, you know, checking on me and. He's wanting me to feel better and getting me home because he was, you know, it was a really traumatic surgery, um, et cetera. And I'm saying, telling him I'm not feeling better, I'm not feeling better. He's like, okay, well, maybe I can take better care of you when they release you tomorrow. And then by Sunday, he came to come and get me because they wanted to release me. I said, honey, I am not better. I, I feel so sick. And he was, even though he was really disappointed, he wanted me to come home. He said, he went to the nurses, she's not well, she needs to stay. And the nurse went and said, okay, I'll go check and see if she can stay. She came back like 10 minutes later and said, her insurance is not going to cover this. Mm. So I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. So I left. I got wheelchaired out because I couldn't walk. The hospital, like the, there was really, it was like a dark hallway. All I remember, I was so, um, so much in pain at that point. Got home. Um, my husband brought me some apricots. I remember he plopped me in front, and he's like, okay, you can watch some Netflix here at home. Um, started watching an episode of something. Gave me some apricots, and I immediately threw them up. Um, managed to get me upstairs. Um, and the next day, I, I made it through the night. Threw up the next day in the morning, and he called the doctor twice, if not three times, and she said, well, she needs anti-nausea medication. So she prescribed, and he said, I really need to bring her in. She's like, oh, I don't think she... So they basically, against the advice of the doctor, he brought me back to the ER, the same ER. And when I got back, then the intake nurse looked at my vaginal area and kind of shrieked. She was like, what, oh my God, what just happened to you? You know, she was very sympathetic. I was like, finally, somebody's looking at me. And then I, the next phase started. And they um, had a wonderful nurse that carried me through that the next 24 hours, which were really traumatic because um, it was quickly discovered that, um, well, they did an initial blood, blood work and they found that my creatinine level was at seven. So mm -hmm. it was really high. I think it's supposed to be 0.5 to one. And so they, my kidneys are failing. Mm -hmm. So what do I do? Um, they can't do a, a contrast dye to figure out where in my body this is, the problem is. Um, and they can't offer me any liquids or anything intake. So they start draining the, the 
um, they put a catheter and they start draining my um, my bladder and I think in five hours they drained four liters of mm. bloody urine and then they they said okay we're transferring you and at that point um, I knew what was happening was serious and that I felt like I was at a risk of a bacterial infection. I mean, I just was like, okay, because they start giving antibiotics or talking on the phone. They're like, okay, what does she need? You know, and that's when I was like, okay, Safa, you need to uh, call people and start praying because this is like just, yeah. And um, at that point, it was just, it was really, really awful. Then they transferred me and... Um, we went by ambulance to the next, uh, another hospital, um, where a team was waiting for me. But it, the the transfer felt like forever, um, because my mouth was dry. They couldn't give me any pain medication or anything. Um, it was ice cubes. It was, um, but uh, you know, here again, the the assistance of a good nurse in a situation like this is everything. Somebody who is with you distracting you when you need it and you know just listening because to contrast to what I felt at the other experience was that people were just clocking in and clocking out and not listening to what I was saying about what was happening with my body um, so and then from that time on I had a repair surgery where it was found that it was not just a puncture in my bladder it was also my right ureter tube was cut so it was a repair. It was about a five, five-and-a-half-hour surgery to repair those organs. Oh. And then um, I came out of that, and I see my the first surgeon had come to visit and had apologized and um, oh, was okay. crying, and I was crying. and Because uh, uh, your surgeon did what? Had punctured your bladder and cut your ureter? Mm-hmm. And he or she was, ex so what did they say? Um, well, this surgeon wasn't at this hospital, but she had somehow got there to see how I was doing and, and, and done that. However, at that stage, I was very upset at her for not listening to me for several days, complaining about this. And also, when I was readmitted to the ER, and she was called back because she was the person who was um, had done the initial surgery, the first thing she said, one of the first things she said in the room was she wasn't like this when she left. And I just I said, mm -hmm. why, why, you know, I'm right here. I was like this, I was trying to tell you. Yeah. And, I, and that's when it's like, okay, when do these legal ramifications come in front of like a situation that is like you can help or you can not help? Yeah, so um, was this the same surgeon um, that when you, Lifted up your sheet, they didn't look? That's not the same person. No, oh, that wasn't okay. the attending physician. Oh, they were just making oh, okay. rounds, yeah. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so um, so what did what did she say to you when she came in to apologize? Because we've done interviews with mm -hmm. medical mistakes, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and she said, I'm so sorry, you know. And at that point, I was so drugged. Um, I was still very emotional, and I was just so relieved that uh, apparently the surgery went well. And I knew I was like, okay, I know I'm going to feel terrible, but as long as they tell me that they did it, they fixed me. Because I had this this anxiety in me. I knew something was wrong, uh, you know? I think that's the thing that perhaps the way that we are in the world these days, 
we're not used to trusting or listening to our bodies because everybody's so used to, okay, throw some aspirin on it, throw some painkiller, throw something on it, instead of saying, this is actually what, there's something wrong here and I need to address it in my body. Yeah, looking back, um, I'm wondering, you know, you, you and your spouse really did advocate, you know, so yeah. you had said, I don't want to leave. He had said, you know, she's not ready. They mm -hmm. had said, well, your insurance isn't going to cover it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he calls back. They say no. Is there anything else you feel that you could have done in order to, to have changed? You know, that circumstance, we were just so unlucky for, you know, with multiple things. So I'm not sure. I If I have to to look at anything that I could have done differently, it would have been a lot earlier. The okay. bigger picture of women's health and not discounting what was happening and not not investigating further. And, you know, talking about periods and how that can lead to anemia. Like my friend and I was talking like, how is it that that's not, wouldn't be one of the first things an OBGYN would say, okay, if you're having um, heavy periods, you should look into um, your blood levels and see that you're not anemic because that can be really dangerous. Um, and your hair loss, you know, those are things that we had to learn the hard way through just because we were, it was happening to each other, not yeah. because any, anybody was telling us. Um, so first start asking questions of uh, your friends, talk about these topics. So we had another interview, um, Volvodinia, and she said, you know, we don't talk about it enough. Yeah. Um, so I'm hearing you say, Start talking to people. Start you know, talking to your periods, daughters when you're little and, and identifying the parts of their body and and not saying it in a hushed voice. Yeah. Um, the fact that I couldn't even name the body uh, that it was swollen when I'm in the hospital, mm. like this part of me is swollen. It's not your vagina. It's your labial folds. You know, we don't know the proper anatomy of our bodies. And, mm. and when I went back to work after a hysterectomy, it's actually spoken hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. Nobody says it in a regular voice. Right. Now, if you can't name it, how can you expect that, you know, you're not going to feel some kind of shame uh, when you're talking about it if you're speaking about it so low? Right. So that, I mean, that aspect. So talk about it. Yes. Be open about it. The other thing I would say um, is this goes back to C-sections. I mentioned a little bit earlier is that, and there was a study that was out in last August, a couple months after my surgery, that found that um, if you have had C-sections, you're at a higher risk to have an unplanned hysterectomy, and you're at a much higher risk to have complications from a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. So um, there was something like 12 times more, um, hold on, I want to give you the exact amount. Oh, you have it written down. Yeah, I have it here somewhere. Okay, so women who have had a previous C-section and another C-section were almost 12 times more likely to need an unplanned hysterectomy. Oh, my gosh. 12 times, yeah. So I would say, you know, know what you're getting into. A lot of people have C-sections for different reasons. Um, they want to do, they think it's safer. They have this belief that it. Um, is less invasive, um, that it's less traumatic to the baby. Or they've had complications. Um, or they've had complications. Birth, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I had three repeat C-sections. So a as you have, I mean, I had my first child was a C-section, um, and then the other two were repeat. So 
that every time you do that, that's scar tissue and that's adhesions and uh, sticking to the other organs and making that part of your body uh, less distinguished if you had to have surgery. So I'm also hearing then to be able to say to your clinician, hey, I've had three C-sections. Do you think that there's find a, a, do you think a, there's a connection with what's going if on? If you've had yeah. C-sections, I would strongly recommend um, you make sure you have an OBGYN who is a skilled surgeon um, in case you need a hysterectomy. Now, hysterectomy is like one of the most common surgeries, just like C-sections. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, people feel like they're, they, you can't go wrong with them, you know, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, but in the long run, I think you'd be much better off um, delivering a baby vaginally uh, if you can. Um, and yeah. Yeah, hysterectomies, and just to, to tell people who are listening, is, is really major surgery. I think it gets really downplayed. Um, I've, I've heard people say, well, if you don't want to get pregnant anymore, just have a hysterectomy. And it's, it's all, um, I've heard people compare it to a vasectomy for a man. Um, a vasectomy is a very minor procedure. It's an in and out of the office. It can take a matter of mere minutes. You often don't have to be sedated for it. Um, they just do sort of a numbing um, uh, for that area. Uh, hysterectomy is major. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're having everything taken out and like you said it's six weeks of recovery and and I I don't know that people understand and one other thing I would say is that um, what became clear to me in my recovery time was that um, and this was another friend yet another good friend who said you know you should really um, consult a physical therapist you're not walking straight Mm -hmm. I had two abdominal surgeries back-to-back you know uh, opening up the same scar and um, she, she pushed me to go get a physical therapy uh, referral from my OBGYN, who I had seen after the surgeries. And, you know, surprisingly, that doctor was hesitant to give, she's like, why do you need PT? And she said, she actually had me walk across the room to show that my posture wasn't good. It's like, you know, you're not, you're not believing me that I'm in pain. Um, I've since learned that physical therapy is not a routine uh, referral at post abdominal surgeries, and it is so. It, it was one of the best things in my recovery process. Uh, my physical therapist was a wonderful person, a listening person. But not only that, she was so competent in her field um, in helping me. And you know, which is a very painful process to actually go through and separate um, scar tissue. Yeah. She also helped me with femoral nerve damage which happened when as a result of being in the same position and um, like a 10-hour surgery back to back then what happens is your femoral nerve gets damaged luckily it was temporary for me it was like six months and it was it came back Um, but kind of working through ways to improve that and balance um, she was a lifeline for me Um, and don't don't even get me started on opioids because (sighs) Oh my gosh. I mean, I couldn't live without them the first two weeks, but then after that, you really, you can see how people would never be able to live without them. Yeah. Because I was off of it for, um, after I said, okay, I can't take this longer than two weeks. And after my C-sections, I never went on any strong medication. I was on um, a couple of Advil um, at most. And for this, and because the pain was so severe, the, the several weeks after, I could not uh, function without it. And mm-hmm. then I had severe withdrawal, couldn't sleep for a week. 
Um, How long are you on the opioid? For two weeks. For two weeks, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had another, as our listeners, if you have not heard yet, um, we have a podcast called The Unsuspecting Addict uh, talking about opioid as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for our listeners, um, as always, the, the purpose of the podcast is to offer tips and insights, which you have done already. Um, just want to go back into, is there anything else um, that you wish or looking back um, would have done differently or advice for what you did do that was helpful? I heard you say um, talking more about this topic, um, talking to friends and family members about the things that are often hushed. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about your different um, organs and functions and what have mm-hmm. you done and what are your suggestions. Um, I would say personally, I'm always amazed when my mom will tell me something. Well, well, I had such and such. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that. Well, that's good to know because then I can listen for it. It makes me think, um, and you didn't say this, but just for our listeners to talk to your family members too, mm-hmm. um, especially older family members, but also siblings and find out what their health experiences are because um, things also in terms of hereditary, uh, they're... Uh, if something happened to you, a grandmother um, could also potentially be happening to you as well. So I always encourage friends and family for myself to to talk mm-hmm. to others um, that are related to you. Yeah, definitely. Was, I meant just yeah. to recap everything that we've discussed, but um, first of all, you know, know what the risks are for C-sections if you are um, considering that. Um, I would also be aware that you know, there's complications from what's considered routine hysterectomies. If you've had C-sections, um, if you've had any type of abdominal surgery, whether it's C-section um, or hysterectomy or something else, try to get physical therapy. Um, and then something we talked about, which is a more broader uh, topic, is talk openly about the female body parts and medical procedures that involve these body parts without whispering. And lastly, be proactive about your health. I think I survived this situation, which could have been, I mean, I was in a state of acute peritonitis when I was readmitted, um, which is one step away from sepsis, which is, Mm. um, as you know, can be fatal. Um, And I also obviously was hemorrhaging and I almost bled to death in the first instance. So I escaped death twice. I think that what carried me through that was my physical and my mental health at that time. I was in really good physical condition, but also I was regularly talking and, you know, doing some work on breathing and meditation, which really carried me through that really stressful time. Um, So it's my belief. I don't, I can't tell you that with any um, certainty, but in my mind it is what what got me through that. Um, And so... And a lot of these, you know, you have to question everything. Question, why why is C-sections and hysterectomies so, so common here? Why are one-third of all women having hysterectomies? Why are um, 33% of women having babies by C-section when um, it should be around 10 to 15, according to the World Health Organization? You know, who's making money off this? I, I would ask, you know, those questions. Um, who's benefiting? Let's not just even talk about the money. Like, who's benefiting? Do you have any, uh, so the the final question, major question, I have one little question to ask at the end, but the final major question is, what advice do you have for clinicians who are listening? So looking back, what are some things that you Mm -hmm. would sort of recap? 
Well, I would, I would say if you, if you're not the right person to do something, to, to, to please, you know, I might not be the, the most skilled in this area, so I'm going to refer you to my colleague who has done this type of surgery more often and um, be open about those things. Um, but the major overall thing that was obviously lacking in my case was listening to the complaints. Very, very basic thing of when somebody's telling you that things are going wrong instead of discounting it into what you think is happening. So just take, because I've had a lot of good doctors who have done that. And this was just happened to be someone who really had inner, maybe had herself convinced that she had done everything right and she didn't believe that there was, could be anything wrong. Um, and maybe that goes back to the whole idea like, well, she's imagining it, or I don't know how people are viewing, um, I was saying that I was very anxious and I could feel that anxiety. Well, they gave me a prescription for Xanax in the hospital. And, and I can only imagine, you know, the difficulties in the healthcare system that we have in the U.S. is um, to appear to be all-knowing and how, how challenging it can be. Um, to admit that you don't know something or to really listen when you're supposed to quote-unquote be the authority mm -hmm. of what's happening. Um, so I can imagine the challenges and the fact that your um, surgeon did apologize is also mm -hmm. unique. Mm -hmm. There's some really, mm -hmm. really troubling statistics on how many people actually disclose a medical error. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the listening point I think is helpful. The other thing you had said I wanted to bring back is um, to look. And I've heard this before as well, is to actually look at the thing that the person is saying. So you were saying, look at mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. part of my body. And the mm -hmm. response was, well, no, we don't get to see, we don't need to see that. Mm -hmm. We've had other people on the podcast um, talk about that as well, where it was the moment someone saw, they were looking at the thing, is when they did a diagnosis, is when they knew something was off. And mm -hmm. the fact that that nurse that you talked about took a moment mm -hmm just to look yeah. and to hear, um, and I hear so many um, stories of it's that that one person, you mm -hmm. know, that one nurse mm -hmm. yeah. um, that took the time. It's usually yeah. that one person who takes a moment yeah. just to consider yes. what's happening, um, and taking that extra moment might mean the difference between life and death. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I can't help but ask because I'm sure everybody mm -hmm. listening is also wondering, um, they made a medical mistake. Uh, did you ever consider legal repercussions? I did, and that was problematic for me for a couple of different reasons. First of all, um, well, the reason why I, I considered it was based on a lot of people who I spoke with afterwards, um, including physical therapists who said, really nothing is going to change in that hospital unless you bring this up legally. Um, so you need to make a case here. Um, I immediately started working with the patient advocacy group and, and telling my story. I did tell them um, at both of the hospitals where I was, everything that happened um, to the minute. Um, and they just... Okay, so legally just to, to jump to the end of the story, unless you have had a major, unless you've sustained a major injury or have died, you can, um, ha a, a lawyer will represent you in a medical malpractice suit. So having had your bladder punctured and your ureter cut is uh -huh. not considered major? 
No, uh, because I uh, they, they fi- because I fixed I was fixed. Oh. Um, now, in what I was told, which I think is really interesting and maybe um, useful for people, is that um, if you're living in a rural area or in an area where they they consider more socially conservative, um, lawyers are um, and law firms are unwilling to bring these cases forward at the risk of the jury siding with the doctor no matter what. Mm. So even though the, this was clearly a case of um, negligence, yeah. uh, they, you would be able to get a, a, a settlement or some um, if you were in a city or somewhere where there wasn't uh, <laughs> a rural jury. Now, yeah. I, I, that was news to me. I said, oh, okay, this, this happened in my hometown of Chicago. Um, at least I would have some something to pay the out-of-pocket uh, bills for physical therapy and psychotherapy from afterwards, you know. But um, they, from the legal point of view, uh, that is not um, yeah. necessary. Because you said it was fixed, too, I guess that's another reason to admit to a mistake. You know, for people who are listening, it sounds like because your surgeon mm-hmm. had admitted the mistake and fixed it, mm-hmm. actually well, it was, proved, it was not, it was not, well, the... Well, it was fixed. Mm-hmm. Yes, mean, exactly. Yeah. Right, right, That right. It, mm-hmm. it, it, in the long run, prevented any sort of legal action that you could take or prevented any litigation right. in the future. But would I take the fixing over money any right, day? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so right. happy that um, I had yeah. the... the, the the reparative surgery. The other thing I want to mention about legal is that you can live with anger for so long. Um, I I felt very, very mad and angry, and I would wake up just thinking about all the circumstances related to this for many months. And um, talking and speaking with a lawyer, you know, kind of magnified that 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 emotion. Um, once we got the news that this was not something that we could pursue. Um, in a way, it was it was devastating because um, you felt like that there was no justice. But um, I felt like okay, I can I can free myself of this now. I I am health, I'm going to work on my health, and I have so much to be grateful for in my life, and um, that's what I'm going to focus on right now. And to I, I mean, anger had its place in this role. But here, this anger is doing this job right now, is talking about it. Anger is uh, channeled into um, communication and advocacy about um, women's health issues. I mean, uh, as I gain my energy back, because it really did take quite a while to recover from this, um, but I can say that at least my iron levels are back, and um, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better and uh, healthier. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the the legal answer because I I know that would be something that would be uh, people would be curious about well thank you so much for sharing your story Um, I heard you say contacting a patient advocate I've had other interviewees suggested as well Mm -hmm. Um, so looking at patient advocates support system you've had throughout this whole process um, and making sure that you talk about this with others as well yes and I I should add also I did write a letter to the head of the hospital Mm -hmm. and um, got back in touch and had two meetings with the hospital of the whole um, the chairman of the women's health and afterwards with the new person who is in that role 
um, discussing some of the issues that, that were problematic in my, my cases. So I have had a couple meetings with them. And hopefully that will result in changes that they make in the future. I would hope so. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate your activism and uh, not being silent about this topic and talking about um, women's health, which um, in of itself is really a taboo topic um, and so important to talk about it with others. Uh, so thank you for being on the podcast, Heather. Thank you, Nicole. So we encourage you again, as always, to look us up on Facebook and like us there, uh, to join and uh, be a part of our podcast group. So if you would like to be a regular, uh, you can also find us on NicoleDeffenbaugh.com backslash blog. If you'd like to leave comments or be on our show, please let me know. We'd love to have you on as well. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.